God has rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son he loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at this Son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. Look up be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. You received Christ Jesus, the master. Now live him. You're deeply rooted in him. All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? Hey, can we thank our worship team? What a great job today, just helping us focus. Love it. I'm really glad to be here. I missed you last weekend. We were away up visiting our older kids up in Sacramento and just had a great time connecting with them and getting to see what life like is like up there. I uh, appreciate Bill Bourne doing such a great job preaching last week in our passage. We can thank him for that, for sure. And we're going to continue today. We're moving forward in the book of Colossians. If you're visiting with us today, I want to especially welcome you. My name is Todd Arnett, the lead pastor here at Trinity. And we are in a series called Rooted. We're working our way through the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible today, you could find your way there. Colossians is in the, towards the real back part of your Bible in the second half of the New Testament. And we'll be in chapter 3 today, Colossians chapter 3. Also, if you look in your Trinity this week, you have notes that look like these. These will help you today track with us as well as their prompts and questions for our home groups as you meet together this week. So have those out maybe ready to go as well. Um, a couple things as you're finding your way there, I just want to kind of catch you up to a couple things. One, uh, today after our services, we're going to do something we've been doing for about six or seven months called Start Here. Start Here is just a really uh, easy, basic, relational opportunity to connect with myself and some of our other pastors. There's an easy up right out these double doors, and right behind the Welcome Center has signs that say that, so you can find it pretty clearly. And uh, we just would love a chance to connect and say hello. If there's any questions we can answer, or if you just want to get a chance to say hi, we'd love that. We also have some uh, always there is what we have our next steps for ways that you might want to get involved more at Trinity Church. So just find us there today if you'd like to do that. Also, we're really excited. The month of November, you heard Kim share earlier, is just going to be a great month. Mission Celebration Weekend kicks off the month. And then two weekends later, on November the 18th, we're very fortunate to have Doug Pollock with us. Doug is the author and a well-known speaker of a book called God Space. And God Space, really what it is, is uh, it's taking our mission. Remember, we talked this time last year, started really saying that the mission of Trinity Church is really, we believe, the mission of every church, and that's to live lives rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. And what God's space does is it takes that other side of reaching our worlds, and it really gives us handles. It gives us just really great ideas, more how-tos. And the interesting thing is, it's not about how to debate someone. It's not about how to have these really kind of poignant conversations. It's a lot of times how to be a good listener. 
how to ask really good questions that really demonstrate a genuine love and care for the people in your relational world. So Doug's going to be with us. He's going to preach in the morning services on the 18th and then do a God Space workshop later that afternoon. So just giving you the date today, next weekend, we'll have his book available. We'll begin to have registration for the workshop. But just really want you to have that on your calendar. We'd love for you to join us. And you'll just love Doug. He's just a great communicator all the way around. Well, today what we're going to do is we're uh, in this series called Rooted, and what we've been doing is we've been walking through the book of Colossians. We see this idea, the first two chapters of the book, the first half, really talked about the context of the gospel. Who are you and who is Jesus, and why do you need him so much? And we just saw through so many great layers this idea of how central, how supreme, how important Jesus is to what our lives are here and forevermore. Then the second half of the book now has been talking about, once we hit chapter three, has been all about how are we to live once we've responded to the gospel, once we've received the grace and mercy of God, how now ought we to live? And I love like even the subheading of our title, uh, Grow Deep, Live Tall. That's the live tall side of this series. And so as last week, Bill did such a good job of talking about the community. What, what are we to live like together as people rooted in Jesus? How should that impact? How should that influence the way we treat one another, the way we do life together, the way that we demonstrate Jesus to one another day in and day out? Bill had a tough passage because there was so much there to walk through. And our hope was, even looking at that passage, that you would have walked away with at least one idea of something that you realize is, is still not there. It's still a next step for you in your life where you go, God, I have not yet given this area over to you. I absolutely still need your leadership, your power to become that kind of person. Today, we move from the relationships of the community to the roles. What are basic roles that would have been found in the Colossian church in the first century that also we find today in Trinity Church in the 21st century? And we're going to look at that. And what we're going to see, we're going to see three types of roles, the marriage relationship, parenting relationship, and the workplace relationship. And within each of those, what we're going to see is roles that are defined by authority. We're going to see authority in each and every one of these categories. And as we look at those, what I'm going to encourage you to do is see what Jesus has to say about both sides of that fence. Today, as we walk through, you're going to identify with various roles. There's going to be a time in which you put on a certain hat, and you're going to be listening through that grid. Other times, you're going to listen to what God would say to someone else in another part of that role and relationship. But the reality is to see that God has something for both people on both sides of the authority coin, those who lead and those who follow, and realize that God has ordained God has given certain roles to us, his people, to live according to his design. And that's what I want you to see from the very beginning today. The gospel is something that should not just be something that is evident to us, but evident through us. And what we're going to see today is the people that we are living out these roles among ought to not just see Jesus, they ought to be benefited by the way that you are demonstrating him to them. So let's look at our now what idea today. And remember, our now what is not just the big idea. What are we supposed to do with this this week? In your notes, when you're rooted in Jesus, your family and work relationships benefit. Those people around you benefit because of what Jesus is doing in you. 
Let's dial in. Number one in your notes today. Rooted in Jesus' marriages constantly demonstrate love and respect. You can tell I didn't even trust you to fill in the blanks today, right? It's just so important. I don't want you to get it wrong. It's what it is, okay? Let's dial in. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Right out of the gate, this is really dialed in, very concise language, just boom, 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 and it's almost like he can kind of say this and drop the mic, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter. That's it. I mean, of all the things that you could say about a Jesus-centered marriage, these are the things that Paul says. So therefore, it's not the only things within a marriage, but they're key things that Paul wanted the Colossian church to understand and get right. The reality is this, as we look through these today, we're going to see the reality of how the gospel should change us. You see, we aren't the same people we were before. What lives that were, you have to realize in the first century, remember we've said Paul, writing from prison, is writing to a group of people he personally has never met. He knows of their faith through Epaphras, their fellow Colossian and his friend who's brought the gospel to them. The church has begun. People have put their faith in Jesus. But here's what you have to catch today. Nobody in the Colossian first century church grew up in a Christian home. There was no such thing. So this is all brand new. So you're talking about two people who've been walking their own way, living in their own selfishness, that now Paul is going to say, hey, your marriage ought to be affected by your faith. What Jesus has done through you, in you, to you, should evidence itself in the way you treat the most significant human relationship in your life. And it should look like this. He's going to walk this out. He's going to show them what this should be. Now, I have really appreciated in the last two years that I've been at Trinity, I've had the privilege of talking about God's design for marriage multiple times. If you were with us last spring, we did a whole series on marriage. If you were with us even the year before, we did a family series and one week was dedicated to marriage. If you were here when I first started, our first study together was in the book of Ephesians and Ephesians is a parallel passage to Colossians 3. We got to look at marriage then as well. So, so here we are getting another shot at this all-important relationship. And as we do it today, we're going to have to be brief because there's two other types of relationships we're going to look at. But what we're going to see is this, is that once you have responded to the gospel, there is an expectation that you would live in a way that reflects Jesus in your marriage. And I really want you to hear this today. I want to be sure to state from the very beginning that you can't do it. You cannot be the wife God designed you to be. You cannot be the husband God designed you to be by simply just trying harder. You can't do it because you're gonna pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't do it because you're just gonna muster the willpower. You can't do it. That's what the whole old covenant was all about was demonstrating a people who tried harder and kept failing. The law was put into place to show them why they needed a savior. But here's how we're different than them. We live on this side of the cross. We live with the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. And it is by surrender to him, words we sang earlier this morning. 
It is surrendering control to the Spirit of God within you, within me, that will help you be the spouse, enable you to be the wife, to be the husband that this passage describes. And I want to say that from the beginning so that we don't get off rail and think that somehow this is going to work just because we decided to do it. It's only going to work because we lay our lives down and say, Jesus, I'm desperate for you. I cannot do my marriage my way. It begins speaking to wives. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That word submit literally means to arrange yourself under. To arrange yourself under a husband's God-given authority. This verb, like so many more that we're going to see today, is a present active imperative verb. So what that means is keep on, wives, keep on submitting yourselves to your husband's God-ordained leadership over your life. And while there might need to be no other rationale given, Paul actually connects another dot. He goes on to say that this directive makes sense because it is fitting. It makes sense in God's design. It's fitting in the Lord. It's according to his plan of how this ever so significant relationship ought to function. Now, because all of these relationships we're going to look at today are based on God-granted, God-given authority and God-given directed followership, let's talk about that from the very beginning. Let's start with that, because that's going to be the essence of each of these three relationships or roles to one another. I think of it this way. It makes me think of, of my home a little bit. Obviously, it should impact my marriage, but it makes me think of my, my kids. Many of you know I have two kids uh, and a daughter-in-law that live in Sacramento, but we have two still at home, Kendi, a junior, and Elia, a sixth grader. So think of it this way. When, when we go out, when Joanna and I go out for a date, we will leave our girls at home and we'll mention first to them what our expectations are. And you could ask Kendi, you could ask Ellie. We say about the same thing every time. I say to Kendi, Kendi, I'm giving you leadership. I'm giving you authority in this home while I'm gone. I'm, I'm, I'm bestowing that, as it were, on you. I don't think I use the word bestow when I talk to my 16-year-old, but that's the essence of what I'm doing. I'm saying, hey, it's, it's the authority that I have in this home. I'm giving it to you while I'm gone. And, and what I want you to do with that, I want you to lead well. I want you to lead well in such a way that your sister actually enjoys your leadership. You take care of her, you protect her, but she knows that you're for her. I want you to lead her that way while I'm gone. And, and when I get back, I'm going to ask her how you did Conversely, I'll sit down with Ellie and I'll say, hey, Ellie, while we're gone, Kendi's in charge. So anything she tells you is as though I'm saying it. You need to lead, you need to, I'm sorry, you need to follow with that understanding. It's not a suggestion she's making. She needs to have a role of leadership in this situation. And when I come back, I'm going to ask her how you did. That's the setting, and, and that's not odd. That's normal for what most of us do when we might leave kids at home. So when I come back, that's what I'm going to ask about. I'm going to say, Kendi, how well did you lead? Ellie, how well did you follow? Those are the roles that I expect them to live in within that sequence. And, and I think that, and I know that I'm overstating in some ways. Let me make sure today that you hear me in everything that we talk about that there's, there's this sense of, yes, while husbands are called to this kind of authority and leadership and wives are called to this kind of followership, because of the abject brokenness of us, there are times when even that is superseded, when we hurt and abuse one another. I need to say that in a room this size because I know that happens. 
But generally speaking, this is the design that God has for how we lead in our relationships, in our marriage. And I think it's like that. I think this illustration of the way that I have my kids take these roles of leadership and followership look like this. Look in your notes. We have a loving Heavenly Father who has entrusted some of his kids. We call them husbands. With a leadership role over some of his other kids. We call them their wives. And he's given directives for each of them. To wives, I place your husband in a leadership role over you for the time being until I return. Do as he directs you to do, but know that I will evaluate his leadership when I get back. Husbands, I place you in a leadership role over your wife for the time being until I return. Lead well and expect that your wife would follow, but know that I'll hold you accountable for your leadership when I return. And by the way, in my, in back to the illustration of my girls, do I love Kendi more because she leads? Absolutely not. I need her to fulfill that role, but I don't love her more than Ellie. Do I love Ellie any less because she follows? Absolutely not. I've designed her at this, at this stage with this, the birth order. That's who it needs to happen. I need her to live in that role. The, the, the value issue is not a question. It's not an issue of value. It's an issue of role. And for those of us who would say, Todd, why do you, when you leave the house, does anyone need to be in charge? You've simply never had children. <laughs> when everybody's in charge, nobody's in charge, okay? So you absolutely need that sense of order. You need that sense of leadership. Bestowed leadership is essential for this scenario to work. Look in your notes. In any relationship that requires decision-making, there has to be someone who provides leadership. Someone who is the deciding vote, as it were, in the equation. According to God's design, that's someone in the marriage relationship as a husband. And remember, husbands, you'll be evaluated on how you treat and how you lead your wife. Let's talk about them next. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Again, another present active imperative verb. Keep on loving. Keep keeping on loving your wife. And loving in a way that's otherworldly. Here's what I think is so ironic. In the first century, <coughs> the original word <coughs> that Paul used here for love is, interestingly enough, a word we know in 21st century church, we know better than they did in the first century. Here's what I mean by that. Today, when we say, I love something, we say, I love my dog, I love my toaster, I love my wife. Hopefully not all the same, all right? It's really weird. So love, when love means everything, love means nothing in our English language, but in the Greek, there were four words that talked about different ways of showing that kind of affection or concern, and they had a nuance, each one of them. Agape is the word here. Agape is the word we know a lot of, but interestingly enough, in the first century, they didn't talk about or use the word agape much because of how hard it was to do. Agape is the kind of love you give, not expecting anything in return. Husbands, Keep on agapeing your wife. Keep on loving her without expecting something in return. Now, every husband in the room, that pierces our heart. We know our own selfishness. And we might even do, quote, loving things that really might look that way, but at the end of the day, have an intent. This is somehow going to benefit me. Paul says that's not the kind of love 
I'm interested in you demonstrating as a Jesus-changed person. That's how you loved before. Every husband loves that way. The kind of love I'm calling you to, the kind of love that you can do because of the spirit that lives in you is the kind of love that says, I'm not expecting anything in return, but I'm giving to you. I'm giving to you. I want you to benefit. I want you to be the one who receives. In your notes, it's easy to say it this way. The kind of love that a husband is to demonstrate towards his wife is putting her needs ahead of his 10 times out of 10. Putting her needs ahead of yours 10 times out of 10. That's the kind of agape love that should transform a marriage. See also, by the way, Paul doesn't stop there. He has a second present imperative verb that's translated, do not be harsh with her. The verb is actually a middle verb. So here's what it means. Keep refraining yourself. It's a reflective verb. It's back to yourself. Keep, keep refraining yourself from becoming embittered, from becoming harsh towards your wife. Here's the thing. There is a God-given expectation that a Jesus-transformed husband not live in a posture where he allows himself to develop a harshness where he allows himself to develop a bitterness towards his wife, that's on you. But remember what I said earlier today. If that's on you simply in the flesh, it's not going to work. But if that's on a Jesus renewed, a Jesus transformed, a spirit infused you, that's a lot different. Now, there's so much more we could say about what rooted in Jesus' marriages look like, but for the sake of time today, we need to keep moving. Let's talk about parenting. Number two, rooted in Jesus' parenting constantly demonstrates obedience and encouragement. Constantly demonstrates obedience and encouragement. Chapter 3, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. If you're in the room right now and you're a child at home, your parents love that verse more than anyone else in the Bible. That's best verse ever, right there. Verse 21, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. It's a verse we don't think of much on the other side, do we? They're both important. This next set of God-ordained family relationships is shown to have a general expectation of how the parent-child relationship ought to function. And I want you to hear this today. They were both countercultural. They were both countercultural. First, for the children, we'll talk about that word in just a minute. It's really pivotal to this passage. But the idea of children obeying their parents and, 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 and that idea, that wasn't new. Everyone, they were expected to do that. But why? In the Lord. This idea, it's the Lord that you are getting approval with. The idea would have been obey your parents to get them off your back. Obey your parents to win their approval, but it's actually looking beyond a parent, beyond the, the agent of authority to the ultimate authority, that being Jesus. When you obey your parents in everything, you please him. That was countercultural. No one was thinking in those terms. The second idea, though parents were understood to have authority in their home, they would have never understood this unique idea of how to have authority. Not with a manner that keeps your children broken, but with a type that builds them up. These were not first century ideas, so when the, the Colossian Christians were reading this letter together, that would have floored them. Let's begin with the word children. 
It's really important, I think, to understand this. Here's the simple question. Is it simply one who was born to another, and that meaning for their whole lifetime, meaning I'm 47 years old and I am my father's child? Is that, is that the relationship we're talking about? Or does it relate to a specific time in a child's life? Technon is the Greek word that's translated child or children. And it means this, a child living in willing dependence. A child living in willing dependence, meaning one for whom a parent needs to provide because a child cannot provide for themselves. So see this, the key word in that is dependence. Dependence is the issue. It's important to note because on the one hand, it might mean this. It might mean for an individual who might have certain disabilities, they might be dependent upon a parent much longer than 18, foreseeably the rest of their lives. And in that kind of relationship, interestingly enough, when that dependence is there, then that obedience is expected. That's what that relationship for them is going to look like for their whole lifetimes. There is a unique relationship of obedience. Otherwise, when young adults begin to move out from underneath that authority and that dependence into a more independent role, now things are changing. And this is the flip side to this idea, also important in a culture when adult children who are quite capable of caring for themselves, providing for themselves, should be living in increasing independence. What happens when they choose not to? And instead want to rely upon the nurturing that was appropriate when they were four, not 24. I'll never forget the conversation that I had with a couple of parents who came to me. They were distraught. Their young son, 22 years old, had just gotten married and was absolutely enraged that they would even consider no longer paying his car payment, his car insurance, and his cell bill. And they said to me, Todd, are we missing something? And I said, not you. When we make adult decisions, there are adult responsibilities. And marriage is an adult kind of decision as anyone can make. And so I would say to you this. This is where I would leave this in, in this issue today. I will talk about me in a minute. But in, in your homes, where your kids are at, and, and we have a bunch of high schoolers down front and others, I want to say to you, as you think about this, I think that this conversation, especially when you're beyond 18, is a great conversation to have with your parents, a DTR, define the relationship. Let's talk about this. What, what are we supposed to be doing towards one another? And, and, and not to put myself in some position that we did it right, but we made a conscious decision. Our two older kids turned 18. We had a great dinner just alone with them, and we said, things are changing. They need to. For your good and maybe for ours, but more importantly, for your good. And the relationship now begins to shift and it moves away from an authority-based relationship to what we have always hoped and prayed for, for a friendship. I'll always be their dad. But the relationship has changed and it needs to for their good. So these kind of relationships, these kind of conversations are important so everybody's on the same page. So for children still dependent upon your parents, Keep on obeying. It's the same word. Keep, keep, keeping on. Keep on obeying. Getting under what you hear is what that word means. 
under what you hear from your parents' instructions. And here's a simple question. In what circumstances? In all things. In every circumstance. Everything. What doesn't fit under that umbrella? And I want to say it again to you today. You can't do this. You can't do this just trying to be a good kid. But I believe you can do this when you would surrender your will and your desires to say, Jesus, I'm seeing even beyond my parents to you. You say, for this time, obey them. That's what I'm going to do. The specific parent that's noted subsequently are fathers. Commentaries are all over the map. Some will say, no, that's the generic word for parents, so mom and dad. Others would say, no, it's actually the parent in authority. That's a powerful word related to a single parent home. So whoever is the parent in charge, this word refers to you. It says, don't run your home in a manner that keeps stirring up anger in the lives of your kids. The word translated here as do not embitter means to exasperate or irritate or provoke to anger. The word in Ephesians uh, chapter 6 is uh, the, the parallel passage here. It means to not stand alongside and provoke to anger. It's a great way of saying don't push their buttons. Parents, don't put yourself in a posture, in a position that keeps on pushing the buttons of your kids. Now, though parents might not be able to control a child who is often irritable, if that was somehow what this was saying, you ought not to have, ever have kids who are irritated. Dear Lord, that's nothing on this side of heaven, okay? There's no way any of us do that. I'm not even looking in this general direction. <laughs> Head down, right? But what they are called is to not intentionally do things that stir their kids up to anger and exasperate them. Where they leave a legacy that is not one of hope and support, but one of discouragement and one of broken in spirit. The word literally means to be spiritless. Our call is to be the opposite of that. I think that parenting is a lot like coaching. I've actually, uh, I'm obviously a parent now, and I've been able to have the privilege of coaching various teams. And, and if you've ever coached or if you've ever been on the other side of a coach, like you've been one who's played for a coach, you know that the best coaches bring out the potential of their athletes through the lens of encouragement and modeling, not through yelling, not through poking the bear. That never does it. It's through the idea of what can I bring out of them? What can I encourage? What is it that I can actually see that they can't even see yet, but they can become? That's good coaching. That's good parenting. Paul uses the word talking about how he is like a father in 1 Thessalonians 2. He's like a father to them, coaching them on. So parents, that's our role. Look in your notes. This is part of the responsibility of having kids, learning to parent them, to coach them in a manner that doesn't leave them hopeless. In a manner that doesn't leave them hopeless. Now, this isn't the only thing that parents are called to do towards their kids. By the way, that's the same word for children that we saw a minute ago, those who are under the dependence of someone else. But it is what Paul wanted to stress to the church at Colossae. They, they need to build hope and encouragement into their kids rather than homes that were defined by anger and bitterness. Remember, I'm not speaking today from an ivory tower. I'm in it. 
I'm learning what it's like. Joanna and I are learning what it's like to parent adult kids with a son who's married and we couldn't love his wife, our daughter-in-law, more. And our daughter, Aaliyah, up at college, we're learning what that's like to transfer that kind of authority over into influence. That's what's really happening. We're changing the idea from, because I said so, which, by the way, is never a good phrase to hang all your parenting on anyway, but from this kind of authority to this kind of influence. And while we're doing that, we still have two at home, Kendi and Ellie that I mentioned earlier. And so for these girls at home, and here's what's really a cool thing for those of you who might be in our situation or maybe have not caught up yet, you're getting there. Here's the beautiful thing. We can actually, for reals, say to a 16-year-old and to an 11-year-old, you will note we do this differently over here. We actually do treat Jackson and Aaliyah differently now that they've crossed into young adulthood, and so this is coming. And it can't come earlier enough for a junior who drives, who already wants to go, come on, just give me, just fill up my ATM card and I'll be fine, you know, that's all I need. But, but for that, we remind her, we remind Ellie, it's coming, the relationship is going to change, watch. Watch how we treat Jackson and Aaliyah. It does, you have to, we promise, but it's just still more time. And we don't do it perfectly by any means. We continue to mess up and fail. But we're endeavoring. Endeavoring to lead well with encouragement about who they're becoming rather than just focusing on what they struggle with. By the way, that's probably a really good way to say what we just looked at for parents. Focus on who they're becoming, not just focusing on what they struggle with. And by the way, my wife is amazing at that. I'm way behind. Number three today, rooted in Jesus' work environments constantly demonstrate integrity and fairness. Rooted in Jesus' work environments constantly demonstrate integrity and fairness. Chapter 3, verse 22, slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, some of you picked up quickly that this doesn't actually sound like employer-employee relationship. We said words like master and slave. Now, some of you in your jobs feel very much like a slave. That's fair. But this is very different. And what I want to do is I want to show you this, to me, is something I don't take lightly. I want to walk out with you how do we make a bridge? Is it a fair bridge to make from a passage that is clearly directed at masters and slaves to that of employers and employees? And let me show you how I got there because I don't want to in any way minimize or, or taint what God is clearly saying, but I want to show you what I've discovered. Let's clarify a few terms first of all. Number one, slavery as America and other peoples have known it has always, always been condemned in the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Slave traders, those who go to another place, literally steal people, bring them back for economic gain. Those people are actually 
they're described this way. They live contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. They live outside of anything related to God's design. And they are included with the likes of murderers and those who kill their parents. This is something that God has a real and has consistently had a very um, strong stand against. Secondly, in the first century, people became slaves for a host of reasons. Number one, there were conquered peoples and the other option was death. Another reason is they were born into a slave state because either one or both of their parents were slaves. Or thirdly, they actually chose a, sl- a state of servitude to either pay off debts or to find provisions in exchange for work. They would willingly, an indentured slave would be that term, would put themselves. But what's true about all of them is they were. They were the property of another. And they were obligated to serve without choice. Third, some have said this, and I want you to see the, the, the truth or the, the breadth of this statement. Some have said that in the first century... If Paul would have made his main issue, that of the slavery problem that was going on in the Roman Empire, what it would have done was absolutely distracted from what every person on the planet's greatest need was. And the fact is that they were going to hell without knowing Jesus. So the idea in a city like Ephesus, 100 miles away from Colossae, it was a booming metropolis of about 250,000 people But historians would estimate at the same time in the first century, in Ephesus, there were 400,000 slaves. So if Paul made it his main thing to come and say, slavery is wrong, it needs to be undone, the gospel would have been lost in the diffusion of an important idea, but not the main idea. Fourthly, As with other human ills, just because the Bible provides guidelines for a problem is not to be confused with condoning such behavior. Let me give you some examples. God hates divorce. It's all over the Bible, Old Testament and New. But because of the hardness of men's hearts, he provides biblical guidelines of how divorce may be allowed. I've said to you before in our marriage series, it sounds odd to say this, God is not only the author of marriage, he's the author of divorce. He said, on these grounds and in these terms, divorce is allowable in these situations. Jesus did not desire that people would be poor and hungry, but acknowledged that they would always exist and instructed his people how to care for them. Paul exhorts slaves to gain their freedom if they can and no longer remain in such a condition if they're able to change it. That's from 1 Corinthians 7. But for those who are slaves, he, pr- he provides direction on how to live as free men. Under your, under sel- understand yourselves in relationship to being in Christ to be free. Though you may have a shackle on your wrist, this is who you are in the new family culture of their heavenly father. Finally, the major abolitionist movements of Britain and the U.S., they came because Christians Jesus' followers were deeply committed to right the atrocities that they saw in the slave trades in their own countries. They took to heart the words of the New Testament and fought to end the slave trades that stole people from other places and enslaved them for economic labor. That being the case, that's a a short treatise on biblical thought related to slavery. I believe that the principles here absolutely apply to what an employer-employee relationship might look like. Notice three things that employees are called to do. First, obey even when the boss isn't looking. 
and with sincerity, with integrity. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart. Secondly, see this form of authority. They're, they're being called by Paul to understand that the authority that they were underneath was ultimately underneath the authority umbrella of Jesus. They were to have a reverence for the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it heartily with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I might say in any of the relationships we've talked about today, for the person in the submissive role, in the following kind of role, each of these roles have called upon the same thing. No matter how difficult the person in God-ordained authority over you, whether it be a husband, whether it be a parent, whether it be an employer, in all of those, learn to look through them beyond to the ultimate authority that's over everything. Jesus himself, and understand that what you're doing is unto him. Colossians 3.23 has been a verse that my wife has um, brought near to her life since she was young. And I've loved the way that she demonstrates always her best effort, whether it be in areas of her own job, whether it be in areas of ministry, in our home, whatever it might be. But the great thing is she's impressed that upon our kids so well. She's reminded them that this isn't because you like this teacher. This isn't because you want to impress a certain coach. This is because what you do is unto God. He's your audience of one, so do your best. I'm so grateful that she's consistently reminded them of that reality. She's just taken these words and not only embraced them in her own life, but wanted to see that be embraced in the lives of our kids. Thirdly, don't use an unjust boss as a cop-out for doing poor work. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. That's Paul's way of saying, hey, I don't care who's over you. In whatever way they do what's wrong, they'll be held to account as well. For bosses and employers, there's chapter 4, verse 1, it's heed these principles. Treat your workers fairly and provide what is right. Not necessarily what's the least that you're mandated to do for them, but is what is right to do for them. And know that you both, you and the one that you lead, you and the one that you employ, they serve the same master who will demand that you give an account for your leadership just as the employee for their followership. You have to realize, let's get back into the first century culture for just a second. For those who as households had responded to Jesus, Epaphras has come and he shared with his neighbors, he shared with people he lived nearby, he shared with his family members, and as the gospel begins to radiate out through this community, imagine as they came to gather for worship. They probably came on this same day, the first day of the week. As they came collectively to gather, they would come as an entire unit, and they might sit on the same row. It might be a husband and a wife, a father and a mother, and their kids next to them, and even beyond them, their family servants. They all sat on the same row, and every one of them who had given their life to Christ are listening to these words read to the Colossian church, and they're hearing how they should respond to each other in their roles, and they're completely countercultural. That's always been the point. And let me say it another time today. 
this group of people on this bench on that given Sunday morning could never have fulfilled these roles to one another apart from the grace and the mercy of the cross and the indwelling spirit of God in them that could truly produce transformation, that could truly demonstrate benefit to one another. In your notes, no matter what the home life situation, no matter what the workplace situation, recognize the authority that is God-given and not derived from any other source but from your Heavenly Father. A Heavenly Father who tells some of his kids, those being husbands, fathers, and employers, to provide leadership for some of his other kids, that'd be wives, children, and employees, the kind of leadership that causes those under them to flourish and to thrive. I want to say this today, really important words. I realized as I was studying this week, which of the hats that I wore. It is a profound responsibility to realize I wear all three of those hats of authority. This is an incredibly humbling passage. A passage that brings us to our knees and says, dear God, how can I lead well? How can I demonstrate and utilize your authority in these lives in such a way that brings out the best in all of them? And I would say no matter what hat you found yourself wearing today, recognize for that hat, God has enough grace. The Spirit has enough power for you to live your role. This week, let's live out those roles in such a way that demonstrate we live lives rooted in Jesus. You're now what statement? When you're rooted in Jesus, your family and work relationships benefit. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today just impressed by you about relationships, roles that many of us are very common to us, are common to our culture the roles within a marriage, the roles within parenting, the roles within the workplace. But what's so powerful about this passage is that you intend for those roles to be transformed. You intend for those roles to look differently because of who Jesus is and what he's done at the center of our lives. Would we this week set our hearts, set our minds on things above where Jesus is seated and as a result, would that change us, God? Would that change our perspective? Would it change our behavior? Would we be a people who evidence Jesus? If you're here today and you've never responded to Jesus, never put your faith in him, I have great news for you. You can do that today by simply responding to the gospel through the lens of the ABCs. A is to admit. Admit you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believe. Jesus is the only Savior available. See, choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I absolutely rely on what you've done for me. I want to walk in your example today. Father, we love you. Help us to live these transformative lives for your, for your glory this week. We pray in Jesus' name.